0: Well, we're in the book of John, we're in this great gospel of John, this gospel that's unlike the other three gospels, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're similar, that's what synoptic means, but John is different. John is the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it starts in eternity past because it presents Jesus as God, and that's really where we find the conflict for Jesus in John chapter 7 this morning. It's because he has made that claim. He has made the claim that he is God. He healed on the Sabbath, yes. That's the flagship issue of the conflicts that he's having. He, he broke the Sabbath rules, but... Even bigger than that is his claim to be God, and that is a huge blasphemous statement to make to the Jewish leaders of that day that he is is God. In John chapter 7, we find Jesus in the temple in Jerusalem. We start out John 7 with Jesus in Galilee. You see that in verse 1. It's because of the the, they wanted to kill him down in Jerusalem. That's where the religious leaders are. Galilee is in the north. Galilee is a little different than the climate down in, down in uh, Jer- Jerusalem where all the leadership of Judaism is. So he's been in Galilee most of the time. But when we start the chapter 7, he's in Galilee, and then he makes his way, by the end of the chapter, down to the Feast of Tabernacles. It's called the Feast of the Booths. It's called Big feast in Jerusalem. Three big feasts that the Jews would attend every year. Jewish males were required to attend, but everybody could attend. They were were the feast of the booze in October. You would have the feast of the Pentecost uh, and Passover in the April time of year, May time of year. So we're really getting close. We're in October. John chapter 6 was Passover, that was April. John chapter 7, that's October. Six months from now, in the chronology of the Gospels, Jesus will go to Jerusalem to be crucified, to rise from the dead, and then later the ascension into heaven. So that kind of gives you an idea we're near the end, and the opposition is increasing And Jesus is responding, and Jesus is on a divine timetable. No one will take his life until the time that's been appointed. Uh, He gives up his life. No one takes it from him. Important things to remember about Jesus. You see that in verse 2, John 7, verse 2, the Feast of the Booths. The Feast of the Tabernacles. What that was was a celebration reminding the Jewish people of how God had sustained them and provided for them while they were in the wilderness for 40 years. They lived in tents, booths, Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Tents. They'd have tents put up all over the city of Jerusalem. People would stay in those tents, celebrating the provisions of God, how God had taken care of them jesus doesn't come to this until midweek you see that in verse 14 we talked about that last week he doesn't come immediately down there he doesn't come with all the uh, fanfare he doesn't come with all the triumphal entry stuff we'll see later he doesn't come with a big caravan he comes secretly he doesn't really want to draw attention to himself as he comes into the city but at midweek he does go into the temple and begin to teach He goes in the temple and begins to teach some things that are very, very important for the people to hear. Joel James, I love the way he does this chapter. He says there are two themes. One is teaching and turmoil. That's all you see in chapter 7, back and forth. Jesus will teach something, and there will be turmoil. There will be turmoil, then Jesus will teach something. That's kind of how chapter 7 Goes. And we looked at the first 24 verses last week. Let me just show you the turmoil once again. The turmoil in verse 3 and f- through 5. We're with his family turmoil. Brother said, hey, Jesus, brother Jesus, get down to Jerusalem. Don't be up here in Galilee. You need to go down to Jerusalem and settle the issue once and for all. Prove that who you are. If you're who you claim to be, you don't need to be up here in Galilee. You need to be down there to prove who you are? Notice you see in verse 5, they weren't believing in him, but they had certainly followed <laughs> life with him and seen the opposition that he was encountering, heard the things and claims that he was making, seen the miracles he was performing, but there's this conflict. They do not believe in him at this point. Later they will, but right now they do not. You see, he says in verse 7, the world hates me because I testify of it. Its deeds are evil. The reason the world hates me is because I speak the truth to the world. The world does not like to hear that it is an evil place. That's an unpopular message for us as a church to call men and women sinners before a holy God. To call ourselves sinners before a holy God. We're all sinners before a holy God to testify to a world that we stand under God's judgment. It's not a popular message. It's a message that will eventually get Jesus killed. Verse 12 tells us there was much grumbling. There you see some turmoil. Verse 12, grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some liked him, some didn't like him. That's how it is with Jesus. He divides, he divides people. Some like him, some don't like him. Really no middle ground with Jesus no middle ground. You see in verse uh, 13, no one was really speaking openly about him because they feared the Jewish leaders. Jewish leaders said, don't talk about him, don't follow him. In verse 14, he begins to teach. The Jews are astonished, the crowd's astonished. You see that in verse 15. He, he just, nobody talks like this guy. Verse 17, he makes a statement, if you're willing to do his will, then you will know of his teaching. Uh, the reason for your unbelief, we well, talked about this last week, the reason for your unbelief is because you're not willing to do what God says. And that's really true, folks. It's really not an information issue. It's really a moral issue. It's like we saw last week with our illustration of Adolf Huxley who said, I don't want there to be a God because I do not want to be accountable to him because I do not want to give up my immoral relationship with my girlfriend. It's because I don't want to do what he says. And that is the reason for your unbelief, Jesus says. Verse 20, the crowd responds again, you've got a demon. You see this turmoil back and forth, teaching things, turmoil back and forth. And he goes on down and he says, you guys, are all about keeping the sabbath and yet you do circumcisions on the sabbath some day sometimes the 8th day of a, ch- a male child uh, falls on a 8th day of his life falls on a sabbath day and you do a circumcision on the sabbath day I healed a man you make a young male baby a complete Jew on the sabbath I can't make a man whole and complete on the sabbath by healing him of his lameness that's what you're condemning me for so that's how Jesus deals with there, with that issue. Because that is the flagship issue of chapter 7. That is the flagship issue of the conflict that Jesus claims to be God and he heals on the Sabbath day. He violates Sabbath law. You guys would pull an animal out of a ditch on the Sabbath. I'm healing a man of his lameness on the Sabbath. Let's, let's get our, it's the lesser to the greater. Let's, let's get our priority right here about what the Sabbath is all about. Well, today we start in verse 25. And the conflicts continue, and you'll see more turmoil and more teaching as we start here in verse 25, and hopefully get to the end of the chapter today. We'll see how that goes. Verse 25, so some of the people of Jerusalem were saying... Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Jesus is standing up there teaching in the the temple area, drawing a crowd, and they're saying this statement. Is this not the man whom they're seeking to kill? Uh, They're acknowledging, some earlier had said, who's trying to kill you? Back in verse 14, but now some are acknowledging, isn't this the one the religious leaders want to kill? Crowds are reacting again. Look, he is speaking publicly and they are saying nothing to him. Have they changed their mind about who this is? You see that in verse 26. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? They don't know one way or the other. Have they changed their mind about him? Is that the reason they are not seeking to kill him? Christ, by the way, is the Greek term. Uh, Messiah is the Hebrew term. Greek term is the Christ, Hebrew term is the Messiah. So we're talking about the Messiah here. Don't they know that this is the, uh, excuse me, do not really know that this is the, the Messiah, do they? They don't know for sure, do they? Or they've changed their mind about him. Verse 27, however, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. That's a legend, by the way. That was not, a tr- that was not true. Micah 5.2 tells you exactly where the Messiah is going to come from, Bethlehem. But there a legend had started, and many people bought into the legend and forgotten what the text of Micah 5.2 said. Basically, it's that he doesn't come from anywhere. The Messiah will just appear. The Messiah will not have a family. The Messiah will not have any roots. The Messiah will just come on the scene. But we know this guy. We know where he is from. So you start talking about his origin. So this can't be the Messiah because we know this guy. We know his background. We would not know the background of the Messiah. Verse 28, Jesus heard this evidently and cries out and says to them, You both know me and know where I am from. yes. And I am not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. He says, yes, you know my earthly origin, but you do not understand. I'm also from heaven. I am from Nazareth, but I'm also from heaven. And I know him. The one who sent me is true. I know him. The one you do not know, I know him, verse 29, because I am from him and he sent me. I am from God. They're preoccupied with where he is from. I know him. I'm from him. He's claiming once again his equality with God. I come from God. I am from God. The Jewish leaders at that point We're seeking to seize him, verse 30 says, but no man laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. More turmoil. More more turmoil, but nobody lays a hand on him because there's a divine timetable and nothing is going to happen outside of that divine timetable. The Jewish leaders have a problem. They have a problem because Jesus is, though confusing to some, some people do like him and Many are indifferent, but the point is they have a problem because there is popularity there, and they don't want to create a riot, and they don't want to bring the Romans in on the situation, and so there's some tension there in what they can do, but they do want to seize him. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, verse 31 says, when the Christ comes, when the Messiah comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? Surely, surely this man is doing everything that we would expect one who claims to be the Messiah to do. Is there anything more this man could do to prove to us that he is the Messiah? In verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering. This gets great concern. And the chief priest and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Interesting, chief priest, that's Sadducees. Pharisees are the other group of leaders. The Sadducees were your liberals. The, the, the Pharisees were your conservatives, like Democrats and Republicans. They don't get along. They don't come together on anything except Jesus. They have one common problem here, and it's Jesus. And they're willing to put aside all their theological differences and all of their practical differences and go after Jesus. And so they get the temple police. This is not the Roman uh, guards. It's not the Roman soldiers we're talking about here. We're talking about the Levitical temple police. That's who we're talking about. We're talking about those who were knowledgeable of the law and who enforced the law. They were the temple police. And that was their job. And they get them and they tell them, go seize him. Go, Go grab him. Go arrest him. The Romans, didn't, the Romans did not want to have to intervene, believe me. They did not want to have to get involved in religious issues. It always ended up in a riot. It always made, look, made Pilate look bad in, in the eyes of Rome, so they did not want that kind of thing to happen. Verse 33 says, Therefore Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. So now he starts talking about his departure He's given the conclusion of his defense. He's defended his healing on the Sabbath. He's made further claims about where he is from. For a little while longer, six months to be exact, the crucifixion will come. He doesn't use those words here, but he says, for a little while longer, I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. Verse 34, you will seek me and will not find me. You will look for me then. You will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. I will have proven, I will proven, that, I, that God approves of me because I will go back to him and approve of what I have done because I will be going back to him. You may reject me, but he does not reject me. I will go back to him, verse 34. Verse 35, the Jews then said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Is he not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? Is he going to leave us and go teach the Gentiles? Is he going to leave us and go outside of Judea and go to the dispersion of the Greeks or go to that area where Jews who never quite got all the way back from captivity into the land live and who have intermarried with Gentiles? Is he going to go to those half-breeds out there? Is that what he's going to do? That's just a question they throw out. Verse 36, what is the statement that he said, you will seek me and will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? They did not believe his origin was from God. They were not acknowledging that at all. But he ends his teaching there, and now he moves into another scene, another scene. It's almost a set-apart scene here in verse 37 and following, because it says, now on the last day. Now on the last day. Most, he's been talking since midweek in verses prior to verse 37. And now we're on the last day. Now we're on the final day of the feast. We're on the Sabbath day. It goes from Sabbath to Sabbath. Eight days. It's on the last day. And Jesus stands up and gives this incredible invitation to everyone. Declaration of their need to believe in him. And this is Rich. Listen. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, verse 38, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He gives that invitation, that universal calling to all humanity to come to him to drink. Wow. Why? Why? So, why give a water illustration at the feast of the booze? Why the water illustration? And here's here's the thinking and the reasoning for that. The feast of the booze involved every day at dawn. Every day at dawn, the chief priest would take a pitcher, a golden pitcher, followed by masses of people. He would go from the Temple Mount all the way down to the Pool of Siloam going from the high point to the low point of the city. He would take that pitcher, he would dip it into the pool of Siloam, take some water out of it, and walk back. The whole time he's going back up the hill to the temple, people are singing the psalm, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. He would get back into the temple, stand behind the altar. Everybody around him citing Isaiah Isaiah 12, Therefore you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation, and in that day you will say give thanks to the Lord and call on his name, singing songs of Psalm 118. All of those things as he takes the high priest takes that pitcher and pours the water on the altar as a thank offering for God's provision. God's provision for water in the wilderness God's provision for water, for the crops they've just brought in, praising and thanking God for all that he had done in making these provisions to them. It's just a visual thank offering of God's provision of water. Today's the Sabbath. There's no water ritual today. Jesus stands up and says, if you want water, here I am. That's what he's saying. Jesus seizes the moment of this thank offering, of this ritual. It wasn't, a, it, by the way, it was not a prescribed ritual from Scripture. This was a traditional ritual they did. And Jesus stands up and says, you want water? Cries it out. You want water? Here I am. Here I am. If you, anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. I am the true water. For seven days, you've been giving thanks for life giving water. I'm the true water. Jesus is essential, like water is essential. We saw the bread of life in chapter six. We saw that you must eat the bread. And you must drink his blood. That language was used in chapter 6. This is drinking the water, now being used here in chapter 7. Same idea, eating and drinking, meaning it becomes inside of you, meaning it becomes one with you, meaning it becomes part of you. In fact, we're told in verse 38 what he means by eating, by drinking the water. It means to believe. You see that in verse 38? Drinking the water means you're believing in me. You're taking me in internally. So Jesus makes this universal call. Anyone, that you can be saved. You can have eternal life. He calls it eternal life in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. Asking for a cup of water. If you knew the water that I could offer you, says to the woman, the water I can offer you will give you eternal life, living water, water that will satisfy the deepest longings of your soul, the deepest longings of your heart. The key in this whole thing is you know what? You got to be thirsty. You see that? Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, you see that in verse 37, you gotta know you need it. You gotta know you got a parched heart. You gotta know you're dehydrated. You gotta know that you are in need of this water. It doesn't just you just don't pour, you just don't go and try to drink something you don't you don't need. You gotta be thirsty. It starts with the realization that I need this water. It starts with that. You can't just pour water on somebody and think they're going to take it in. I can't just lead them to a trough and think they're going to drink, like a horse, right? You have to have an awareness of the fact that you are a hell-bound sinner and you need, you need the salvation that Jesus is offering here. That's where it starts. You cannot be found unless you know you are lost. You've got to know you're lost. You've got to know that going to church does not... Fit with this at all. Just going to church does not fit with this at all. Just getting baptized does not fit with this at all. There's got to be a thirst because this is living water. This is innermost being water. This is doing something to you internally, not something that is outside of you. It's not some ritual. It's not some going through some motions. This is something from within that changes you totally. Completely changes you. Coming to Christ. You, you're thirsty and you come to Christ recognizing he's the only one that can provide this water. I can't get it anywhere else. I can't get it from anything else. There's no other religion that offers this. It's Christ and Christ alone. You see that in the verse. Let him come to me and drink. Verse 37. I must appropriate Christ in my life. I must trust him as Lord I must, like drinking a glass of water, I must, I must recognize it, must become part of me. That's much deeper than just praying a prayer. It's much deeper than just acknowledging some facts about the gospel. It's much deeper work that's going on here. He says, as the scriptures say, he says, as the scriptures say in verse 38 this a, a lot of different scriptures say this in different ways there's not one scripture he's quoting here but from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water you know water's not a big deal to us cuz we got a lot of it we get too much of it but in these people in the desert water talk was big stuff refreshing uh, enriching so it had meaning it meant fruitfulness It was a celebration, something to celebrate when the crops would grow because they would give water. This water meant life. It was life giving water. That's how they would hear this. It's a water that overflows in us, he says in verse 38. It's a water that overflows. It overflows in our life, it overflows into the life of others. If you're a Christian, that's what he's saying. This this life is an overflowing life, a running water within you. You begin to impact others, and you begin to... That's all ministry is, by the way. Ministry is just the overflow of your life into other people's lives. As uh, As you are walking with God, as you are growing in your faith and maturing in your faith, as you are learning things from God and being taught through His Word, and just the overflow of that life begins to flow into the life of others. It's a powerful picture, powerful picture. You heard of the the fountain of youth? Uh, If you're a Floridian, you've got to know your history, okay? Ponce de Leon, what's it, 1513, came to Florida looking for the fountain of youth? Uh, came to St. Augustine. I don't think he ever found it. And there's been historians that say it was a it's certainly debunked myth, but the point is, you know what? People still seek it. They still seek it. I've been to that park in near St. Augustine. The archaeological dig there. And you know what? You pay the entrance fee, they'll give you a drink of that water. So that you will live. So you'll always, stay, always be young at least. But you'll live forever. People go there, even though it's been proven, debunked, they go there. You know why? People like the pursuit. People like the pursuit of life. There's something innate in us. It's not so much about finding it as much as the pursuit of it. Think about that just for a moment. Why why is that? Why is that? Why is there something in me and you that wants to live forever? Ecclesiastes tells you why. Chapter 3, verse 11. He has made everything appropriate in his time. Notice, he has set eternity in their heart. Folks, that is in everybody's heart. To want to live forever, to want to never die, to never want to grow old, to just want to keep on living, to be immortal. That's what we all want. It's in our hearts. Our problem is we look for it in the wrong places. We're like the children of Israel. My people have committed two evils, Jeremiah says. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. They've honed for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They've gone after other fountains. We go drinking in the wrong places. We go to try to find this immortality. We go to try to find this, I want to live forever. We want to try this, I'm going to conquer death. We try to find that in the wrong places. It's innate in all of us. He's put it there. We just don't go to the right place to find it. Jesus says, I'm it. I'm it. I'm it. See, that's a fountain that makes anyone who drinks from it immortal. You know that? Because he conquered death, we will conquer death with him. And we will live with him forever. Listen to Isaiah 55. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and you have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. He says, I'm the one who gives the living water. I'm the fountain you need to drink from. Don't run to the fountains that do not satisfy. They promise they're going to satisfy, but they do not satisfy. See, that's in all of us, isn't it? All of us think like that. ARP sends me articles every week on how to defy aging (laughs) and death, ultimately, I guess. It's what everybody's into. to live we want to live forever we want immortality jesus promises it right here right here he promises it come to me you who are thirsty come to me recognize you're thirsty come to me and drink that's his invitation to you you're sitting here this morning and you're thirsty he is your only answer to quench that thirst To satisfy that thirst, he makes that claim. He takes, he seizes the moments at the Feast of the Booze to make another statement about who he is. I was bread in chapter six, I'm water, living water in chapter seven. He makes an explanation here in verse 39. need to move past this, but look in verse 39. 739. This he spoke of the Spirit. Okay, now this is going to get interesting, and I don't have time to develop all of this today. We will really look into it in chapter 14, but let me just introduce it to you here. This he spoke of the Spirit. What's he talking about? What's he talking about in my innermost being? What's he talking about? This he spoke of the Spirit, whom notice very important, whom those who believed in him notice were to receive, were to receive, for the Spirit had not yet was not yet given because the Jew because I can't get all this out because Jesus was not yet glorified. Holy Spirit's what we're talking about in your innermost being. The believers had not received, and there were believers, there were believers, but they had not received the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit yet because Christ had not yet been glorified. That takes place at his resurrection and later ascension. Okay? That had not taken place yet. So we have here some believers, some believers in Jesus some Christians who are not permanently indwelt with the Holy Spirit. There was a time when there were some Christians in the presence of Christ while he, during his ministry here on earth that they notice you'll see in a minute, that they were, the Spirit was with them, but the Spirit was not in them. I will clarify in just one moment, but there is a distinction here for these believers. They're promised that one day in Acts one eight they would receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit would come and permanently indwell them. That happens at Pentecost. We're not there yet in the timeline. Turn to John, fourteen verse seventeen. Let me show you. This is Jesus' upper room discourse. This is Jesus prior to the crucifixion, prior to the resurrection. In chapter seventeen, excuse me, chapter fourteen of John. He's made a promise. I'm going to leave you. I'm going to send the comforter to be with you. He promises them the Holy Spirit will be with them. John 14, 17 says this. That is the spirit of truth the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you notice know him because look, he abides with you and will be in you. You follow me? He's with you now. He will be in you later. The Holy Spirit was present in the Old Testament the same way, not permanently indwelling anyone, but He was with believers. He would empower people at different times to do different things. The prophets, the spirit of the Word has come up, the spirit of the Lord has come upon me. You see that over and over again, but we don't talk about permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit in a believer until we get to the book of Acts, until Jesus is glorified. That's what John is saying in John chapter seven. That is what is going to be in your innermost being. That is what is going to be what satisfies your soul. That is what's going to be what gives you power and strength to live the Christian life, we learn later. All of these things, it's the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer, you have today, in a complete sense, you have today, post-Pentecost, you have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. If you don't, you're not a Christian. Romans says that. If you have the Spirit, you belong to Him. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Him. It's very important. This is very, very important. Every single believer post Pentecost is permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We had a period of time there when Jesus was with them, but the Spirit was and the Spirit was with them, but the Spirit was not in them. Indwelling. You had that in the Old Testament as well. We're we'll going to talk more about this in John 14 in a lot more detail. Because I want you to understand the Holy Spirit. But understand that, that we are talking here about innermost being. We're talking here about that's the Holy Spirit. And folks, you know something? You know something? If you don't see the evidences of his presence in your life overflowing out of your life, One of two things is going on. Either you are quenching the Holy Spirit by living in sin as a Christian. You're grieving the Holy Spirit by living in sin as a Christian and that he's not working through you. Or you're not a Christian at all because he's going to make himself evident. He's going to make himself evident. Overflowing, that's what he's saying. Overflows out of your life into the life of others. People in your family, people in your workplace, people in your school. I know I've quenched the Spirit many times, made me even doubt my salvation at times because of my sinful behavior at times. But that's what, for the believer, that's how it works. I want to be filled with the Spirit. I want to be controlled by the Spirit. I'm not talking about these crazy manifestations that some people come with. I'm talking about just walking in obedience to Christ every day. All right, that leads to turmoil and confusion. Maybe you're confused this morning. I don't know. Maybe I've confused you, but verse 40, the people therefore heard these words, were saying, this is the prophet. Verse 40 of chapter 7. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, "This is that prophet. This is that guy Moses told us about in Moses, excuse me. in Deuteronomy 18:15, the prophet, we've talked about this before, the one who will come like Moses." Verse 41. Others were saying, "This is the Christ. This is the Messiah." Others were saying, "Surely, surely, Christ is not going to come from Galilee. We have an origin issue again. Is he? Matt, Micah 5:2 says he does Micah 5:2 says he comes from Bethlehem but out of Galilee he will come as well the prophets say but the point is there's division about who Christ is and there's always division about who Christ is just listen to what people think Christ is at Christmas time all the different views of Jesus come on the scene Easter will be the same way all the different views of Jesus who is he who is he I always like those honest seekers, like, you know, some of these are dated a little bit, but you know, like uh, Josh McDowell, when he, he was in seriously investigating and trying to disprove the resurrection of Christ, a serious seeker, seriously trying to prove something, and he ends up becoming a Christian. Or a guy like uh, uh, Lee Strobel, the case for Christ, set out to disprove it. But he was going with facts. He was looking at it. Many people do not even look at it. Many people do not even know what they're rejecting. They just reject it. Jesus is not going to be born in Galilee. Impossible. Jesus is not going to come from Galilee. The Messiah is not going to come from Galilee. All these kinds of crazy statements. People find reasons not to believe. Believe. Verse 42, has not the Scripture said that Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem? Yes, they got that one right. Verse 43, so a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Yes, this is the turmoil I was telling you about. That's what this chapter is, teaching turmoil all over the place. And it's no surprise that there will be division because as we learned in our Sunday school class this morning, the gospel divides. Jesus said it this way in Luke 12, 51. Get this down. Luke 12, 51. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather a division. I will divide mother and father and sister and brother. He will divide you in your most intimate relationships, family. That's found in Matthew 10, 34. I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. And folks, that is the reality. Some of you cannot stand Christmas. Some of you cannot stand getting together with fellow family because it's so hostile towards you at times. Some of you have a difficult time with any holiday when family's involved and you're gonna be there as the Christian in the room and they're going to mock that. That the reality is, God, God give me grace in those situations because that is exactly what happens when you stand with Christ I'm not saying be, I'm not saying be, you know, mean to people. That's not worth saying. Just taking a stand with Christ just brings a reaction and a response. And it's getting more hostile all the time. All the time. So division occurred, verse 43 Verse 44, some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. They're hovering, the religious leaders are hovering there. These officers come back. Now, remember the officers from verse 32, those temple police, they come back, and the scribes and the, the, the chief priests and the Pharisees say, why didn't you bring him with you? Why didn't you arrest him? That's, we sent you out there to arrest him. That's your job. Verse 46, whoa, nobody talks like this guy. Nobody talks like this guy. Nobody talks like Jesus talks. And these guys knew, these were religious guys, okay? These aren't Roman centurions. These are religious guys. They know when they're hearing something that has a ring of truth to it. They know when they're hearing something that is not a reason to arrest somebody. They're starstruck, their heads are spinning. They're overwhelmed. This guy does miracles. He claims to be God. He talks about being the water for eternal life. He's no mere man. There's something about this guy. We're not going to do your dirty work for you. Instead of capturing him, one writer says they're captivated by him. Great way to say it. Verse 47, the Pharisees then answered them. They start to mock them. They start to taunt them. And he says, you have not also been led astray, have you? They taunt these officers, trying to shame these officers. That's what you do. You shame, you shame the, the messenger. You shame the people when you don't agree with them. Just find ways to shame them. That's how, that's how people do it. And that's what these guys do it. Because they don't agree with what they've done, so we'll shame you for it. You've been led astray. You've been deceived. Verse 48, no one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? Hey, listen, we are the smart guys, and we haven't believed in him. That should tell you something about him, Jesus, that we haven't believed in him. Very elitist. And that crowd out there, verse 49, they don't know the law. They're just simpletons. They don't know the law. They're just... Blindly following a man named Jesus. So you discredit people you disagree with. You just go after them. Simpletons led astray. But there is somebody standing there who does know the law very well. and He happens to be part of their group, the religious leaders group. His name is Nicodemus. We met him in John chapter 3. You see his name in verse 50. He's standing there. He's the one that comes up to Jesus in John 3 in the night, talking about Jesus, tells him how to be, that he must be born again, and this one religious leader, this exception among the religious leaders, Nicodemus, teetering on conversion, may be converted by now, I don't know. I do know by John 19 he is converted because it's him that prepares the body of Jesus for the grave. The wind blew some point in there. The Spirit of God did a work in his heart somewhere between John 3 and John 19. I don't know if it's here or if it's later, but he's, he's teetering on that conversion at least. Verse 51, he says this, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, right? Does it? Very wise statement. Jesus should be tried the way our law says so. And he will be tried, by the way. He'll have three trials. Actually, he'll have six trials. What am I saying? He'll have a lot of trials. And none of them are correct, done right. But they have disdain from this man. They have disdain from him. Verse 52. They answered him. They they answer Nicodemus. And they say, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Nothing good comes out of Galilee. They didn't even like Galileans. Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. They, so they go, here they go again, attacking him personally. Attack the people, the crowd. Attack the, 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 the temple guards. Attack everybody because you're up against a wall and that's all you know to do. You have no evidence for anything you're saying. You're making this statement. There are no, no prophets from Galilee. Well, what about Nahum? What about Jonah? In fact, Nahum, the city of Capernaum is named after Nahum. They're prophets. Just throwing out things and hoping nobody will go search and see if it's true or not. And so, the point is Nicodemus spoke up for Christ. I, I just think this is great. Nicodemus spoke up for Christ. I like that. You know what courage is? Courage is when you do something that you could possibly suffer incredible consequences for. That's courage. Loss of reputation, mocking, all of these things for standing up for Jesus. The very thing they're arresting people for, Nicodemus is saying, we don't just do this. It's a courage to do that. I just wonder how many of us have courage. How courage in the times in which we live to come out of the shadows like he does to let people know I'm a Christian just sort of. Does any, let me ask you this question. Does anybody in your neighborhood know you're a Christian? Does anybody in your workplace or your classroom know you're a Christian? Maybe this is a, a time to step out of the shadows and speak up for Christ. Maybe this is a time for all of us as a church to think about taking the gospel to our city this year and being courageous even in the midst of the cost, the ridicule that might come, the misunderstandings that might come, whatever. Jesus says, "If you're ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father." And we take that serious. May we learn from Nicodemus' example. We're not to be a, a light that's covered up. We're to be a light on a hill. To shine brightly. And I think there's some people in this room this morning that are thirsty, and I will tell you, Jesus said he will satisfy that thirst. He will satisfy that thirst. Don't go looking for it somewhere else. Drugs will never bring it to you. Sex will never bring it to you. Money will never bring it to you. All the other fountains you drink from will leave you thirsty or thirstier. He ends this by saying, Everyone went to his home. That is so strange strange way to end but that's what we'll do we'll just end it here and go home actually this some commentators believe this actually belongs with you got brackets in your bible around it some your translations have brackets around it and it goes down to verse 11 all bracketed some believe the earlier manuscripts don't contain that statement in verse 53 or verses 1 through 11 in the earliest of manuscripts. They are in later manuscripts. But we're going to consider it to start next week. We are going to look at it next week. Uh, Everyone went to his home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, verse 1 says. <laughs> Seems to fit there better. But anyway, hey, thank you for your attention this morning. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for this time. Thank you, Father, for being the living water God we need that we need this God we are we're parched maybe we're Christian this morning and we're just parched and dry feeling dry God you're the water living water May we just let you work in our hearts and deal with our sin if we're Christian and living in sin we got to turn from that and repent that the water might flow through our bodies and lives and overflow into others' lives. We just thank you for this time today. We thank you, God, for your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.